0: I'm Gregory Berg. Ten days ago, on the 12th of January, the world lost a fine singer, actor, and gentleman by the name of Bill Hayes. Thanks to my friendship with his niece, Joanne hayes Bozeman, a wonderful voice teacher up in Appleton, Wisconsin, I was able to connect with Bill Hayes eight years ago and record one of the most memorable interviews of my entire life. In memory of Bill Hayes, I want to replay that interview today in its entirety. It's an interview which also uh, includes, uh, at the end, uh, some comments from his beautiful wife, Susan Seaforth Hayes. Here is that conversation played today in memory of Bill Hayes.
1: upon a star makes no difference who you are anything your heart desires will come to you if your heart is in your dream no request is to Extreme, when you wish upon a star as dreamers do.
0: I absolutely love that recording of When You Wish Upon a Star, and I am very much an admirer of the singer. His name is Bill Hayes, A very familiar name, I'm sure, to many of you. I suspect a very familiar voice to many of you as well. Bill Hayes, who originally hailed from uh, the the good old Midwest, and we'll talk about that, ultimately uh, uh, has had a very interesting, varied, rich career, uh, including a stint on your show of shows with the legendary Sid Caesar uh, as one of the leads in a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical on Broadway as it opened, Me and Juliet." and uh, the number one billboard song in all of America, The Ballad of Davy Crockett at one point, and then a long stint on uh, one of the most beloved of soap operas, Days of Our Lives, and uh, joining him on that show for many, many years, uh, his real-life wife and screen wife as well, Susan Seaforth Hayes. I am a a, a friend of the niece of Bill Hayes, uh, Joanne hayes Bozeman who is a highly regarded voice teacher at Lawrence College in uh, uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. And uh, Joanne and her husband, Ken, have uh, endowed a new award as part of the musical theater competition for Nats, and uh, it will bear the name of her beloved uncle, Bill Hayes. And uh, that's really the occasion for this conversation in which we're going to talk with Bill Hayes about Uh, the many facets of his career, but especially talking about his career as uh, one of the finest vocalists of his generation. Bill Hayes, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
2: Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Hi, folks.
0: Really happy to be talking with you, and uh, this is a real delight for me. I actually want to begin with the beginning. That is the fact that uh, you were born in a community called Harvey, Illinois. Ahead of this interview, I meant to get out a map and find out where in the world Harvey, Illinois, is. Tell us well, about Harvey, Illinois.
2: It's it's a uh, south suburb of Chicago. If you go due south from Chicago, uh, uh, you know one, two, three, fourth. I'm I'm on 150th Street or 155th Street. That's Harvey.
0: Ah, so you sort of feel like you're from Chicago, or do you yes. like to say you're from Harvey?
2: Well, either one. I mean, uh, I, uh, Chicago was, uh, was the big city, and Harvey was, uh, was a tiny suburb. Uh, it's fine with me either way.
0: So tell us about your childhood there. What kind of home did you grow up in, in Harvey, Illinois?
2: A musical home. My dad was a businessman, sold World Book Encyclopedia, um, and uh, he loved to sing. He sang every day of his life. Um, so I grew up, he used to, I have two brothers and he used to wake us up in the morning by singing, uh, a song uh, that was, that was his thing. And, uh, was it the
0: same song every day or it would change? No, it days?
2: changed. It changed. Well, usually it would be, Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning, <laughs> but, um, it's, uh, it, uh, my, uh, brother George, my older brother played trombone, um, uh, my he and my younger brother Phil and I, with my dad uh, were a quartet before our voices changed we We used to sing um harmonize you know and then I sang in school choirs and sang in church choirs and um there's a lot of music as I grew up very good I played fiddle in the in the High school orchestra. They played pretty good fiddle for a while there. Huh.
0: Was your father a trained singer or just someone who loved to sing and had a lot of natural talent and just happened to do it well?
2: Sort of both. He he had a few voice lessons, and he had a wonderful voice. It was kind of like a John Charles Thomas or a Robert Merrill type lusty baritone sound. Wow! And it was uh, he really had a, a beautiful voice and did a lot of singing. Around Harvey, uh, it was always just for fun hmm. um, i don 't know if he ever got paid for singing, but uh, he sure loved it
0: hmm. uh, I assume you sang as a young boy as a as, you know kind of a boy soprano with an unchanged voice what 's yeah. your recollection of when your voice changed as all boys' voices ultimately do?
2: Yes, age fourteen I always wanted I watched my dad sing in the church choir. At the Federated Church in Harvey, and I just couldn't wait till my voice changed that I could uh, join in and and, uh, sing with him. And that my voice changed at age 14, and uh, I went in the tenor section and loved it.
0: Mm. At what point uh, did you ever take what we would think of as a proper professional voice lesson? Did that ever happen for you during your time in Harvey, uh, aside from school?
2: Not in Harvey, no. Um, I graduated from uh, high school there and then went to DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. There, I took uh, a few voice lessons in my freshman year, and um, I rather screeched as a tenor. Most of my, my best singing at that point was blending. Mm. <laughs> um, I sang in the university choir, which was oohs and ahs and soft and 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 blending sounds. I sang in a quartet, barbershop quartet. Always blended. Um, I did not study voice too much, but uh, I guess hearing my dad and and having some of his, some of his recordings in my ear, he. He had some pretty nice recordings, uh, not of himself, but of uh, professional singers, so I listened to those. Um,
0: so you had some very good influences that sort of, in a sense, helped shape you on top of whatever your natural inclination and talent was.
2: That's correct.
3: Hmm. And, I wonder... um, uh,
2: Then we had World War II, and uh, I sang in a quartet during World War II. I was in the Navy Air Corps. And... Um, Afterwards, I went back to DePaul, finished up at DePaul, and um, uh, graduated there. And then I fell into my first professional singing job, and I had still this kind of soft-blending sound, which, which uh, pretty much you heard on that recording that you just played. Um, after that, uh, I got in the, the uh, singing chorus of Carousel. When it arrived in Chicago on its national tour, and I, uh, I, I, the fellas in the in the show kept telling me, "Look, if you want to sing in theater, you got to you have to learn to project. You have to take some voice lessons here. You have to develop a, a different sound from this soft blending sound that will never reach the front row, <laughs> let alone the back row." <laughs> I want
0: to I want to stop you for just a second. So, for instance, then back in high school um were you ever in were you in a school that ever did for instance musicals i mean and were you ever the
3: lead
2: yeah, or were I you- did i did some um and uh, at DePaul i sang some uh, some gilbert and sullivan the gondoliers and uh, uh pirates of penzance and things like that um um and and I could I could project some but uh they really had a point that I needed to develop more of a robust sound to carry in a theater because mm. at that time we, we, you know now we have all kind of manner of microphones then there were not those were not available
0: right by the way uh tell us more about this matter of carousel i had read in one of the biographies of you that that carousel had had some impact on you in terms of, of getting you really on the track to becoming a, a full-fledged professional singer. But I hadn't realized that that carousel experience actually involved you singing in the chorus. Tell us more about how that happened.
2: Well, um, as I said, uh, it started with my father's fun. Uh, he was this businessman, and that was his real job. Uh, what he did for fun was sing and act. And I thought that's the way it was. Uh, I had no idea you could make a living, get paid for doing what you enjoyed. Um, uh, So um, when I got out of college, my young brother, Phil, had written to the stage manager of Carousel saying, if you need a tenor replacement, I'd like to audition for you. And uh, I arrived home just as He received a a postcard saying, yes, come to the Schubert Theater, stage door, 2 o'clock Tuesday, and prepared to sing a song. Well, he had a strep throat. (sighs) He could not make a sound. So I scratched Phil off, and I put Bill on the card, and I went down to the Schubert Theater, and uh, I sang for them. I sang I Love Life, and uh, they hired me, and they were going to pay me 70 bucks a week. And I thought, oh. Wow, you could, it was an eye-opener. You could get paid to sing, and act. What could be more fun than that? And so I did not get a real job. I went to the, into the chorus, the singing chorus of Carousel, and it's a fabulous show. It's just genius writing, and I, I fell in love with musical theater. Um, I the, that that show is just. It's, it's still my favorite.
0: Mm. Well, and my understanding is it was the favorite of Richard Rogers. of all of the wonderful scores that he composed. He regarded Carousel as his musical masterpiece. So well,
2: I I uh, I agree. It's just the the lyrics are wonderful and the music is soaring and wonderful. And the, the how, how could how could you write something as beautiful as the soliloquy? Right, carousel soliloquy. Just, it's just so moving and wonderful.
0: I'm just curious, uh, as a member of the chorus, uh, you were a tenor, weren't you? Yes. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you if you had Billy Bigelow envy, because of course you would have stood on that chorus uh, on that stage in the chorus and uh, heard the lead of the show singing some of that magnificent music. But of course, you you yourself were a tenor, uh, so you had different aspirations, I suppose.
2: Well. I stood at the side of the stage and listened to Henry Michael sing the soliloquy every show that I was in. I was in it for for three months, and then the show went left Chicago and moved on. But I had decided by that time. In fact, I had already begun to uh, go to Northwestern to get a master's in music and uh, and take voice lessons so that I could really develop my voice in that way
0: very good I'm I'm excited to be able to ask you about your vocal study at Northwestern University Uh, was that what we would think of as very standard kind of classical training I mean even though obviously your aspirations were uh, for the musical theater world were you studying the famous 24 Italian songs
2: absolutely Yes, Vittoria, Vittoria was my first song.
3: Ah, yes. Uh,
2: I, I sang "Son um, Tutto several of the uh, songs in that in that book, and and as time went on, I appreciated them more and more and more. The beauty of the of those songs, in addition to the the vocalness of 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 what the music says, it's it's uh, yes, I had a a very classical training. Uh, John Toms was my my voice professor, and I had a, vo- a voice lesson every day for the next year and a half.
0: Really? You mean Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday?
2: Yes. Wow. Huh. Um, I had told him what I wanted to do, and he said, well, let's go at it. Hmm. Uh, and we did. And uh, I did a lot of uh, performing there at Northwestern University. Um, I uh, I learned a lot of songs. I sang some opera, not a lot, but uh, some. And of course, I had to do um, student recitals throughout my my syllabus there, and uh, and then a, a graduate recital, hmm. which included art songs and and some opera.
0: Was this the first time in your life that you had sung in a foreign language?
2: Probably yes. Hmm. I'm, I may have in high school or college maybe some Latin. Hmm. But uh I had studied at Depa I had studied languages. There was a great course given um studying uh Italian, French and German. I had studied I'd taken uh Spanish in high school and I'd uh, when when I was going to Northwestern, I got a job singing uh, in a temple, so I sang in Hebrew, uh, and suddenly I was singing in all the languages. I sang in in Spanish, French, German, Italian, a lot of Italian, of course.
0: Huh. And evidently you were, you were something of a natural doing all of that.
2: Well, I loved it. I loved singing in the other languages. Adelaida,
0: hmm. um, uh, I sang
2: hmm. on my graduate recital
0: the big song, long song by beethoven right
2: beethoven wonderful wonderful song
0: amazing <laughs> song i agree
2: i sang a spanish song also in that and an italian so and mm. a french so
0: <laughs> do you happen to recall as you began studying with mr tom's uh what what his most significant reaction to your singing was i mean at at the outset of your training with him i mean did he did he hear significant problems that needed to be fixed or was it just a matter of this beautiful singing just sort of getting in a sense kind of pulled out of your body so you, that that whole matter of projecting and of thinking of yourself as a soloist i mean was that the main task at hand with in this study with him
2: well i would say um yes to that but but he taught me a lot he really taught me a lot um I, he taught me about opening my throat, for instance, which I hadn't thought of before um, he He taught me the pronunciation of of vowels that could change the tone from perhaps too bright a sound uh, that would that would not be in keeping with the with the other vowels I was singing um, uh, he he was uh had a beautiful light lyric tenor voice and he could do that so easily it was never easy for me to do the kind of light light lyric that he could do so easily mm.
0: sometimes when people are real naturally gifted singers who just simply love to sing it is kind of a wrenching experience emotionally and mentally or or maybe uh, a very frustrating experience to suddenly have to kind of work at something that you always just sort of did for fun and did with a sense of ease and abandon. Uh, do you remember as a young singer ever going through that, feeling like, I, I know how to sing. Why do, why do I have to go through all these voice lessons and learn all these songs in Italian? Or, or Or did it seem like the most natural thing in the world for you to be suddenly studying something that you'd already been doing for so many years?
2: It was like eating cake. I loved it. Um, he was a champion for me. Um, I I ended up, I, as I said, it. I took a voice lesson every day, a year and a half, at which time I received a master's in music, majoring in voice. Um, it was it was all choice and fun and and the learning was fun um i it was never a, a difficulty for me um uh, perhaps the uh, songs presented uh oh, maybe it brought out problems that he heard and that he then used as a as a way of teaching me something new i loved learning new things about about singing um I I know what you mean, and and I've I've heard people do that. Say I don't I don't want to learn to sing that way. I don't. Um, voice voice lessons are not for everybody. Right. I had my older brother George had a, a kind of a sweet tenor sound, and at DePauw, he took lessons, voice lessons, from a man who taught him to sing like this. <laughs> he was. Uh, You've got to be round. Your sound has to be round. You know, he had that uh, overdone, awful sound. And George kept coming home and showing us how he was being asked to sing. And the rest of us in the family said, George, are you sure? Hey, <laughs> you don't sound like you at all. This is well. This is the way to do. Ooh. It was, you know, voice lessons. There, not every voice teacher um, gets it.
0: Right. And, of course, there are certainly teachers out there that seem to want to take a singer and sort of transform them in maybe a way that is very artificial. And yeah. and one of the things I would say about your singing, every example of it I've ever heard, is you are one of the most natural-sounding singers I, I can really remember listening to. In, in, in the sense that, uh, although you've had this training and and know what you're doing, on the other hand, there's this wonderful sense of spontaneity and naturalness in the way that you sing, and it sounds like that was an important cornerstone of this study at Northwestern too.
2: Yes, it was. I attribute a lot of that to to John Tom's not not monkeying with my with my apparatus or my you know the way that I sang. He. He in, enlarged the sound, certainly, and he helped me to, uh, he gave me vocal instruction that that has carried me from then till now. Hmm.
0: For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with a highly regarded singer by the name of Bill Hayes, and uh, we're about to talk about uh, some of his first experiences on television and on Broadway with Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mr. Hayes, I want to play uh, a brief excerpt uh, of, of your singing from Gilbert and Sullivan's Yeoman of the Guard. Uh, oh, all right. And this is a recording from a few years back and, uh, and a lovely example of your singing. I want us to hear just a little bit of this moment from Yeoman of the Guard. Again, this is with our... What's that? It's 1958. Very good. So here it is, a bit of the singing of Bill Hayes.
1: Is life a boon If so, it must befall That death, whene'er he call, must call too soon Though fourscore years he give, yet one would pray to live
0: That is some first class singing. That's Bill Hayes singing his life a boon from the Yeoman of the Guard by Gilbert and Sullivan. And Mr. Hayes, one of the things I want to say about that recording is and one reason I played all of it, both verses, is not only is that a wonderful, brilliant, gorgeous sound, but we understand every single word. Has that clarity of diction always been a a part of your singing or did you have to work hard to develop that?
2: uh it's something that i i am aware of and have worked on uh when when i listen to singing i love to hear the words and understand the words um, many people just make pretty sounds but uh they can't understand them i don't admire that and um i well I think it's very important. That's why I've tried to emphasize the consonants as much as the vowels and uh, and to make the words understandable. Hmm. That recording, I've never heard that. Really? Never. It's uh, I did the Yeoman of the Guard uh, for Hallmark Hall of Fame that year. But we had an orchestra, and this one with the piano i don't know where that came from. I've <laughs> never heard that
0: wow, I purchased it from uh, itunes uh, from a double album, and I don't remember the cover, but I'll have to email you all of that information so you're so you're aware of it but uh well, I'm glad I could give you a little uh surprise treat today um we need to talk about the uh career that took off for you on television. You proved to be quite a natural for television, and uh, a lot of people know that you uh, had a stint on uh, Sid Caesar's amazing program, Your Show of Shows. I think you were actually on television just ahead of that, though. Tell us about how you first made it onto television.
2: Um, My first television was in 1948, um, when it was still experimental, and I was working uh, studying at Northwestern and singing in Chicago. Um, I sang in a jazz quintet. That was the orchestra for this, uh, the series called the adventures of Homer Herc, H E R K. <laughs> and, um, I sang duos. Um, second tenor. Um,
0: <sighs> sounds like fun. Uh,
2: uh, yes, it was fun. And, um, yeah, um, then um, in 1949, I joined Olson and Johnson. Olson and Johnson were um, vaudeville performers. Their biggest hit on Broadway was called Hell's a Poppin'. And uh, we were, it ran for many years. And uh, we did a show, I got hired for, for them, to do um, a show called Fun's a Poppin'. I had just finished at uh, Northwestern and went on the road with them. Um, in, in September 1948, Milton Burrow starting the Texaco Star Theater, really started commercial television. Um, and when it came to the summertime of 1949, he was uh, he took a, a 13-week hiatus, and they hired NBC, Buick, uh, hired Olson and Johnson. To do those thirteen weeks, uh, filling in for Milton Burrow, so I sang mostly pop stuff at, on that um, uh, on that on that series. Uh, Max Liebman uh, uh, asked me to sing for him. He said, "I'm putting together a, a show called Your Show of Shows, and it's going to start next February, and I'd like for you to come sing for me." So. I met him and uh, sang uh, one song, uh, two different styles for him. The song was East of the Sun. I sang it as a ballad, uh, kind of phrasing it in a pop way, and then sang it once as a rhythm song. And he hired me. So I started in February 1950. on your show of shows, and I did 120 of the 160 uh, episodes of your show of shows.
0: Wow. You know, one of the things that's interesting to think about is, now we know of this as one of the legendary programs of all time, yes, uh, so it groundbreaking. I suppose at the time, you had no, none of you involved had any way of knowing what, what a groundbreaking program this would be, uh, or, or did you, did you have some inkling?
2: Um, we knew it was good. Sid and Imogene were just incredibly creative. Uh, we had a, a, a extremely creative cast. The writers were good. Um, Mel Brooks being one of the writers. Mm. Um, we had uh, Max Liebman had the idea that television was for people with money. Uh, not everybody had a set. And the affluent people, he thought, liked sophisticated humor and uh, more sophisticated music. So we had grand opera on every episode. We had Robert Merrill, who was a regular, and Marguerite Piazza, who was a regular. Um, when they were not available, uh, they brought in Jan Pierce or Patrice Buncelle or... Uh,
0: Lily Pons, I think, made an appearance yes, once. And... Yes,
2: she was. she was on it. Um, and, um, Jack Russell was a baritone and I was a tenor and we were all purpose. Um, we would do a scene with Marguerite or Bob Merrill and, uh, then they would sing the aria. So I got to sing some opera all through my time. Um, and some demanding operetta all through my time on your show of shows.
0: Wow. And this is in front of an audience, right? I mean, I know the show was live, and I believe there was an audience there taking it all in. Is that right?
2: We had an audience of about 350. We were not in the studio. We were in a theater. It was the International Theater in New York City. And uh, they had taken out many of the seats to, to put cameras in and platforms for the cameras, um, but they left about 350 seats, so we had a, a live audience, and, and people don't relate today to live. They just don't understand that live is live. <laughs> they say, "Well, you pre-recorded." No, we didn't pre-record anything. We was live. Mm. Um, you had to sing. It's a good thing I had studied to to have a projecting sound because the microphone might be 12 feet away.
0: Hmm. Well, and if you're sharing the stage with someone who sings regularly on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera, you're singing with singers with very, very big voices. That's and right. Wow. What a, what a training ground.
2: Yes, and oh, those two, our, our two opera stars, uh, Marilyn Piazza, were just fabulous. Hmm. I mean, they sang everything. Every week, a different aria. Um I can't. Uh, Marguerite must have sung uh, arias of maybe three dozen composers. Just wonderful, all different languages, and 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 Meryl the same. Oh, they were good.
0: And and within this the the scope of a show, these would be performances in a sense straight performances. Quite. I mean, m- most of us, when we look back at your show of shows, we think about the hilarious comedy and what when clips are shown. It's never of Robert Merrill singing opera. Right. It's, it's of all the madcap antics. And so what you're saying is this was a true variety show that, that involved not just comedy but also straight singing acts as classical as what you've just been telling us about. That's
2: right. Wow. And it was done very straight. Uh, once in a while, Imogene Coca, who had quite a voice, Coloratura, um, would with her we would do uh something that lampooned the singing we would sing it straight and uh and but she would make fun of, fun of. we sang the quartet from rigoletto mm. and uh jack russell adriana knowles and imogene and i sang it and we sang it quite straight and imogene could sing it she could sing all the all the coloratura and the and the stratospheric notes and um, she would be flirting with me or something to make it funny, you know.
0: Wow. Do you have a recollection of where the orchestra was? Was the orchestra in front of you down in a pit, or were they backstage? Or,
2: uh... Okay, picture a theater. We mm-hmm. um, were on stage. The um, To my left, all the seats were taken out um, like if i'm facing out at the at the theater um the all the all the seats on, the, on on my left would be taken out and the orchestra was there um there was a slight delay so we had to go with the conductor's arm uh for downbeats um he uh, wore a white shirt and was always very visible uh you could see him out of the corner of your eye no matter where you were facing and You didn't get the sound quite when, you know, it takes a moment.
3: Hmm.
2: (laughs) There's that that little tiny sound delay, so we went with him.
0: Right. Well, it sounds like you were a natural for that, because I'm sure a lot of performers would really find it hard to adjust to that. it sounds like, and from the clips I've seen of you on television, it looks like you didn't struggle with that at all.
2: Nope, did not.
0: Hmm. Those, uh, those had to be glorious experiences uh, for you. Uh, sometimes the creation of programs like that are delicious fun for the audience, but, but incredibly backbreakingly hard work for everybody involved. Which it uh, was. Was it fun hard work or just yes, hard hard work?
2: It was all under pressure. You know, you have a week. They decide on Sunday what you're going to sing next Saturday. And then you have to um, have that uh, arranged. Um, Buck Warnick would stay up all night, Sunday night, writing writing, uh, vocal arrangements. And uh, we would get them, uh, some of them on Monday, some on Tuesday, some Wednesday. (laughs) And once in a while, you know, you'd make a a last-minute switch. Um, You have to uh, learn it and it might be a song you never heard before um, and you have to stage it and uh, memorizing everything um, done by Thursday because Friday you have, have to show it to the camera director um, you have to sing it with the orchestra with the music still wet on the page and, uh, and Saturday was uh, on camera the whole day we finished Saturday night. <laughs> Excuse me, and you get a, a a good night's rest, hopefully. And they decide on Sunday what you're going to sing the next week. I mean, it was all under pressure. It was very hard work. Wow.
0: Did it feel like the music was as important a part of things as the comedy? Did you ever feel like you were you and your musical colleagues were just filler between all of the comedy that was? What it was really all about, or did you feel like it was an honored component in this program?
2: Well, it, it, it served its purpose. Um, Sid was Sid and Imogene were the stars of the show, and later on, when Carl Reiner arrived, um, he and Sid and Imogene and Howie Morris they were fabulously funny. Um, so we were in a way the the relief <laughs> the the setup between um we had a few vaudeville acts that came in that served that purpose um but um we were respected uh a lot hmm. you know wow. um, sometimes we'd do six numbers in a show wow that's a lot of that's a lot of learning um uh, and uh and yet it had its purpose mm. um Judy Johnson and I must have sung a hundred duets um, all staged um and yet uh, we were we were quite re- respected the The opera was so beautifully done that it was quite respected we We were filler and and yet we were we were substantial
0: mm. We're speaking with Bill Hayes. Uh, he's just been recounting one of the most interesting chapters in his long and and uh, brilliant career, uh, a, a long stint with uh, Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows. It's not long after that. I suppose it would roughly have coincided with the ending of that show uh, as Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca were split off into two different programs. And uh, your next significant gig, as far as I know, is an amazing opportunity to sing the lead in yet another Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. You talked earlier about how Carousel played such an important role in you wanting to become a serious professional singer. Tell us about how the opportunity to be a star in Me and Juliet came along.
2: Um, I was still on your show of shows. Um, they, Rodgers and Hammerstein auditioned for, for Me and Juliet, um, in uh, late 1952, um, I decided to go audition for them. And they asked me to sing in their in their show, and I had to request to be out of your show of shows as long as uh, me and Juliet ran. So that's why I didn't do uh, all the episodes of your show of shows. I was out for a while. Um, actually been very kindly al- allowed me to go out and uh, I had the experience of a lifetime wow. um, No kidding Rogers and Hammerstein hmm. musical that uh, opened at the Hannah Theatre in Cleveland, ran a couple of weeks then went to the Schubert Theatre in Boston ran two, three weeks and then went to Broadway, the Majestic Theatre and we ran 11 months on Broadway wow. and When then, Two, two, two more months we did in Chicago, but, but did not uh, do a, a tour more than that. Mm-hmm.
0: Your audition, was it for Mr. Rogers and Mr. Hammerstein? Yes, it was. I what in for... the world did it, I mean, you were you were by that point, of course, a very successful singer. Nevertheless, I can't imagine what it would be like to uh, walk onto a stage or into right. a room or wherever it was and audition for two legends like Rogers and Hammerstein.
2: Right, and the director was George Abbott who was uh, he? Was the king of directors of Broadway. The three of them were sitting there, and I couldn't help but see them. <laughs> I sang um, a song from Miss Liberty called I Love You. Um, um, it's um, by Irving Berlin, and I, I sang it in E-flat so it opened on a high G. And, excuse me, just one second. That's please. fine.
4: Hello? Okay. All right. Sorry, I'm
2: back. That's all right. Um, um, I wanted them to know that I had that I had high notes, so I opened with a song that, that started on a G and I love you, I love you. There's no other way, just one way to say I love you. And they liked me and hired me, and uh, then uh, <laughs> I. Opened on Broadway. Wow. Played on Broadway.
0: (laughs) What did it feel like to be shifting from what you had done on your show of shows, which was a different little adventure every single week, to something like this, which was one huge project. And you worked, I assume, for weeks, maybe months, I assume months, uh, before this big project opened. I mean, I should think that felt very different in some ways. Was it difficult to, to work in that kind of way?
2: It was different, yes, uh, we had five weeks of rehearsal before we opened at the at the Anna Theater in Cleveland, uh, and then they made changes, uh, so you might come in the next day and say, Well, we're doing this here's your here, here are your new pages for that scene, and that scene is out and that here's and we fixed and changed. Um, there was a song um in me and Juliet that uh, Joe Lautner sang called The Big Black Giant. He had a beautiful bass voice. And they ended up, uh, after the run in Cleveland, and said, it's not right for him to sing that song. Bill Hayes should sing that song. So suddenly they did a, a an arrangement in E-flat, and I sang The Big Black Giant. But <laughs> um, It was... Uh, <laughs> you're right. We had more rehearsal time, but it was uh, still... Uh, With all the changes, (laughs) you had to be malleable.
0: Of course. It's like you never knew what would be coming next in some ways. But once
2: we opened, they didn't change a thing. Hmm. Once we opened on Broadway, that was it. That was the show. Hmm. And Dick Rogers was a stickler. No phrasing. No other love have I. Two, three, four. Hold it right to the end and then grab a quick breath. <laughs> Only my love for you. All the eighth notes, um, anticipating the bar lines and everything. He wanted it sung that way. So said, <laughs> you, you go in a club or record it, you can sing it any way you want, but on this, on this stage, it's my show and you do it the way I wrote it. That's it.
0: Wow. And... Uh, I assume back then, although I could be wrong, that you had nothing like the amplification that now you have all the time on Broadway. Was there some amplification of the voices, or mostly was it just your voices needing to project into the hall on their own?
2: Zip. No amplification. Uh, We sang in uh, stagey keys, therefore. I mean, if you were going to sing it in in the best key for your voice, you you might choose one key, and then but for the stage, it had to project, and so they sang it a little bit higher and a little more demandingly. Hmm. We sang "No Other Love" in A flat, and it ends with an A flat. Hmm. I'm one up there. <laughs> the,
0: uh, the 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 excerpt from "Me and Juliet" that I have actually queued up is actually a a, a fun moment from. Uh, the the show called "That's the Way It Happens," which yes. is I think one of the duets that you sing, right?
2: Yes, I sang it first, is almost like an opening number in in the show. I sang it first, and then Isabel Bigley sang it, sang a chorus of it.
0: Here is a little bit of that fun song again. This is Bill Hayes in Rodgers and Hammerstein's "Me and Juliet" from the original Broadway cast recording.
1: guy in New Haven on the road with a show There's a girl in the company that you hardly know You watch her and you wonder if she'd like to partake Of French fried potatoes and a T-bone steak comes a fellow who is quicker than you And he does what you thought that you would like to do He takes her to a bistro where they give you a break With French fried potatoes and a T-bone steak Now you see them together and you know in your heart That you lost what you wanted at the very start Because you didn't ask her if she'd like to partake Of French fried potatoes and a T-bone steak That's the way it happens That's the way it happens That's the way it happens
0: There it is a moment from me and Juliet by Rogers and Hammerstein, sung by bill hayes what were what were Rogers and Hammerstein like to work with in this show? Uh, you've already told us about Mr. Rogers being very exacting and precise. Uh, were they supportive directors or uh intimidating or a little of
2: both? Uh, um, both of them were so professional and so supportive. Um, I worked with, uh, Dick Rogers in years after where he was a conductor and he was, he knew the music and he was an excellent conductor. He heard everything. If someone played a sixth and there wasn't a sixth in the chord, he knew it and he knew who played it. Wow. Um, Oscar Hammerstein was, was of course involved with, the with the words, um, if I can remember George Abbott staging a scene and it being rather confusing to uh, Isabel Bigley and me and after the scene was all done and we went to work, to work on something else, Oscar came up and said, "Well, think of it this way so he he was he saw that we were struggling with something, and he came and and put it straight uh, They were both very helpful um I I am such an admirer of both of them. I did a show uh, of Rodgers and Hart music. We sang uh, Kobe Grant and I sang like 52, 54 songs of Rodgers and Hart and R- Rodgers is so creative in all those Rodgers and Hart songs. And then he changed his style and, and w- when the words came from Oscar Hammerstein his music changed he he went with the heart of uh Oscar Hammerstein
3: mm.
2: he's uh, is, is such a creative fellow and then Hammerstein I loved what he did i just the man is a great man
3: mm. well
0: what a thrill for you to be uh a part of of a broadway history as one of the leads in in this really intriguing show uh, yeah. not, not, uh, not in their top five or six in terms of, of highest-grossing uh, shows, but uh, a, a, a commendable part of their legacy, and, uh, and there you were at the heart of it, uh, the That's thrill it. of a lifetime.
2: Well, you're right, thrill of a lifetime. Mm-hmm.
0: After that, you have the number one song in the country Correct. with the ballad of Davy Crockett. And, uh, and uh, can you just say a word about how this came about?
2: Yes. Archie Blyer called me on December 15th, 1954 and said, Are you still recording with MGM Records? And I said, Nope. He said, Could you record a song with me, Cadence Records? I said, Yep. He said, Come by the office, please. I have a song. I went by his office about 12.30 that day. And he had a lead sheet of the Ballad of Davy Crockett. Let's sing through it. I sang through it. He said, do you like it? I said, I love it. He said, do you want to record it? I said, yes. He said, tonight? I said, yes. And that's what happened. (laughs) He went off and wrote the orchestration and called the instrumentalists. I went off and studied the song. And we met at 10 o'clock that night, and we recorded it one take.
3: Mm.
0: Here's just a snip of the uh, ballad of Davy Crockett, which at the time was Billboard's number one song in the country and sung by Bill Hayes.
3: Davy,
1: Davy Crockett, the king of the wild frontier. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. A green estate in the land of the free. Raised in the woods so he knew every tree. And killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, the king of the wild frontier. <laughs>
0: I wonder, was it fun to... uh sort of adapt what you would typically do into the you know, kind of a new genre? I mean, trying to sound like you were somebody out of the western frontier that way?
2: Well, yes, it was. But I had been doing that uh, all along, switching to, to whatever... whatever the, this number that I was doing was, uh, had its own style... Um, This was just another version of that. Um, I had sung uh, hillbilly songs. I had sung folk songs, um, cowboy songs, country. Well, this was sort of all in the middle of all that. Hmm. And so I just went with whatever felt like was right for the song.
0: Hmm. And ultimately... Your career uh, included a great deal of cabaret singing as well. Yep. I wonder if you could just say a word about um, how singing felt for you in those kind of settings where you're holding a mic in more intimate surroundings, not on a stage projecting to a, you know, to, 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 to an, a large audience in a large hall, but it's, it's a very, very different situation, particularly for the audience. How different was it for you as the singer to be singing in those situations?
2: It was quite different. I I um, uh, uh, came to admire uh, saloon singers and uh, people who worked in clubs because it is totally different genre, different style. Different. Uh, I put the keys much lower so that the, the projection was not first. The microphone did the projecting, and soft crooning sounds um, were much more fit. i still it would use uh quote money no, money notes but um uh well uh, sometimes the orchestra was large, sometimes the orchestra was small, and you have to adjust to that i I learned a lot by working in clubs didn't do a lot of it, but I did enough sang enough in in vaudeville houses and in clubs to hmm. to uh, perfect a, a vocal microphone technique is quite different.
0: And it sure seems like one way or another you have done things right in terms of preserving the essential beauty of your voice, Uh, so very well after all these years of of singing. Uh, What would you attribute your longevity to, uh, as your longevity, vocally speaking? Uh, Anything in particular that you did, or uh, is that partly uh, the good fortune of of nature, of kind of the body and voice you were blessed with? Uh, To what do you attribute the fact that your voice is still quite lovely at the age of 89?
2: Well, I would say that... uh when I was at Northwestern working with John Toms, I learned a lot, and that sustained me a lot. I learned uh, on Broadway after, after uh, many weeks of singing and speaking on Broadway that if I put a little edginess, a brightness on my tone, it carried better. I didn't have to sing so loud or speak so loud. That was very helpful. I've done some plays where I'm on stage the whole time, sometimes shouting through the whole show. And if I put an edge on the sound, it carries more. And I don't have to work so hard. And that's been helpful to me. Um, I I found out early in life that uh, smoke and drink make singing difficult. Um, on on Broadway, one night I went out to dinner between the the matinee and evening show, and everybody else was having a glass of wine, so I had a glass of wine. Well, it relaxed my chords enough so that the A-flat at the end of No Other Love was extremely high. It was like a... <laughs> you know, tones higher. <laughs> it was very difficult. So um, I, I uh, fortunately have not been addicted to those <laughs> i don't know <laughs>
0: learned a good lesson there <laughs> yeah
2: it was a big one i remember the the night wow was it high
0: <laughs> you mentioned earlier on that your father uh sang to you uh just about every morning when you and your brothers would uh would wake up i'm trying to remember uh have you among all of life's experiences been a father yourself
2: yes i uh um in college, married uh, Mary Hobbs, and we had five children. Um, I still have four of them, and then 12 grandchildren and 21 great-grands.
0: And did oh. you try to make your home uh, sort of the same music-filled home that uh, you grew up in, in Harvey, Illinois?
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely. I love music, and music's good for the soul. And uh, all, all my kids, none of them went into s- singing um Uh, to make a living, but uh, they all have enjoyed singing and enjoyed music a lot. Very good. Yep.
0: At this point in our interview, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by the beautiful wife of Bill Hayes, Susan Seaforth Hayes, and uh, at this point we get to talk about... uh, The really exciting collaboration, which uh, they've enjoyed in a number of different uh, ways, including uh, co-authoring a couple of uh, highly regarded books, and, of course, their performances over the course of many, many years on Days of Our Lives. Susan Seaforth-Hayes, why don't you tell us about the day you first met Bill Hayes? I understand it was sort of bedazzlement at first sight, at least on your part.
4: Well... I had purchased Bill's records. I also had a copy of The Ballad of Davy Crockett and various other songs that he had recorded. I had seen him on television and been quite a fan, of course, of your show of shows. Uh, And I had seen him in the theater uh, when he did uh, Bye Bye Birdie. I was uh, ushering one time uh, at the theater there. You would get to see the show for free if you ushered, so I did and I did. And the sight of him singing "Put on a happy face" from the second balcony was very transformative. I thought he was adorable <laughs> <laughs> and I was a long way back in the theater from him, but so i so I knew of him as a fan and as a a pop singer. Then he's suddenly on the show, and he is hired as an actor not necessarily as a singer
0: and of course the show we're talking about is the soap opera days of our lives Lives Lives, and you'd been on i think for a couple of years at that point
4: uh at that point it had been on maybe four years
3: Mm -hmm.
4: and there were there was plenty of soap opera on uh various other shows a lot of them in new york all of which are gone now but the mood on most soap operas at that time and i had worked on others I'd worked on General Hospital. Um, was rather drear. There were stories of based around hospitals. There were stories about lawyers and doctors and guys in suits and ties and pain and anguish and unrequited love. Uh, more pain and anguish than than mystery, violence, uh, or romance. So Bill Hayes turns up, and the writer of the show, Bill Bell, who went on to create other soap operas, including The Young and the Restless and Bold and Beautiful, uh, immediately realized that he had something new in the cast member. All of our actors were established and good and dramatic actors, but here was a guy that could do everything and more than carry a tune. So he came on as a rogue character, as a lawbreaker who was, in fact, discovered in prison. Blue-collar crimes, but still—not blue-collar, white-collar crimes, but still basically a bad guy, an opportunist, a charmer. Well, that character developed into the Bill Hayes that America fell in love with, even as I had. (laughs) And they began to insinuate— music into the show they were able to insinuate music into the show because bill hayes could write his own arrangements sing in tune suggest songs that were appropriate to a situation and as soon as possible, they put him in a restaurant, and then they gave him the ownership of the restaurant, so he could, so he could sing anytime he showed up.
0: Very handy.
4: Very handy, <laughs> with a pianist in the background. Ah. Uh, then they added Robert Clary eventually to the show, and other singers to the show. Kay Stevens was on the show for a long run. Gloria Loring, Patty Weaver. Uh, Gloria's still singing. Uh, Robert Clary is still Bill's closest friend. So... That element of music added so much romance. It wasn't as though you were playing a love song in the background. It was the guy that you wanted could sing the song to mm. you. Big difference, big difference.
0: Absolutely, not Other just something playing Indiana in the background. And it, yeah. an
4: attempted to copy it uh, with limited success. Uh, immediately on uh, CBS, characters were turning up with a guitar, having told the producer, no, no, I can sing. And they would discover that you had to pay for most of the music. So you wound up hearing uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: sung with uh, mixed emotion by uh, an unqualified actor who said he could sing.
2: Oh, dear. Uh,
4: but Bill went on and on and really turned the show around. Well, uh, we
2: sang a lot through the 70s. There was a lot of music. A
4: lot of music, and it, it would underscore the uh, the plots, Our uh, Our romance was considered very popular when uh, Time Magazine did a review of all of the soaps that were on the air. They wanted to do a cover story on uh, pop culture, which was, of course, soap opera. They interviewed all the shows and took pictures of all the actors, but in the end they put Bill Hayes on the cover of Time Magazine with me. Yeah. uh, Which was a a big boost to all uh, all of our feelings of being... Being recognized by the country
0: right well and and when you think about who's been on the cover of time, I mean Franklin Roosevelt Mahatma Gandhi, uh,
4: and Gandhi yes, uh, and, others. and <laughs> yeah and
0: bill and Susan Yeah. <laughs> and a few mur-
4: and a few murderers, despots, and no counts, but right. we got to be on it too absolutely i and have to he really he really changed the face of uh daytime television
3: hmm, that- uh,
4: and of course we can then I had to catch up, which I never did, but I could try. Um I began to take some voice lessons and I was lucky enough to do a few musicals with Billy which was terrific. Yeah. Uh I got to do uh, 42nd Street with him once uh we before just before we were married I did 80 Annie in Oklahoma with him playing Curly of course. And uh Oliver Maine These were great experiences for me. Also, uh, I had started, my first paying job was as Trouble in Madame Butterfly and discovered that my darling loved the opera more than anything, and we have spent the rest of our married, our 40 years of marriage and 44 years of friendship uh, going to the opera all over the world and and sharing that and having opera singers for friends. We. um, Became friends with Richard Castley and Patricia Craig Castley, uh, continue to be her close friend. which And she's teaching a voice in San Francisco now um, when she left the Met. So we just. music has been I felt, a part yeah, of our life a, as well. A Greg. huge part of our life together. Mm. And uh, I used to think that all the riches in the world came through your eyes. Not necessarily the gold you could clutch, because I've never had gold to clutch. <laughs> ah. But to me, the arts were were painting and cinema and the visual arts. But knowing Bill, and maybe even in the last five years, I began to understand that the riches that you receive through the, through the joy of hearing are just as precious, hmm. if, if not more so, and of course, eternal.
0: Right. That reminds me of... Of one of the clips from Days of Our Lives that I think is especially beautiful is the occasion of um uh a wedding anniversary uh of, of, of two of the older characters. It would be the characters played by uh Francis uh, Reed and, like, Carey and Francis Reed. Right. Yes. And uh for I think maybe their fortieth or fiftieth wedding anniversary Uh, Bill Hayes is serenading this table full of family members with the song Always, kind of the theme song of the family. And uh, I think this comes at a moment when the two of you who are both in real life and on the show had been married. That is, your characters we're married. And, yeah, at that but moment. at that moment you are estranged. So he's I can't singing. I remember this.
4: what the problem was, but when I look at that clip, I say, "Gee, I must have been having a, a big problem." Right.
0: Well, and I know the two characters were divorced uh, at least once uh, before Twice. getting yes. married. Yes. But um, but it's it's a beautiful scene, not only because he takes the microphone around this table of various family members and kind of shares the mic with with various uh, cast mates two at a time uh, from you we don't really hear any singing as much as we just see you as you're listening to especially him sing yes. and it's a beautiful moment that that sort of underscores how powerful music is and especially when there is a song that means, that means so much something,
4: to you means so much to so many people uh we um Performed that song again more recently, uh, when the show opened a big new set that had been built in honor of the characters that, uh, were played. It's called the Horton Town Square. And the characters that were played by Mac and Francis, who have both passed away, were immortalized by this, um, this imaginary, <laughs> town center in the imaginary town of Salem, Anywhere, USA, which is where mm. Days of Our Lives takes place. So we
2: sang a duet version of then Always. And we sang
4: a duet of I'll Be Loving You All, uh, which was very sentimental for us and uh, very nerve-wracking at the same time for me.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. But uh, how fun for you to have uh, a collaborator like your husband, Bill, oh, in a this collaborator. venture. collaborator! Right. <laughs> Not too, not too shabby. No. I know the two of you have collaborated on on, uh, on two books as well. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, I, uh, you have a dual memoir, which, uh, which I bought uh, when it first came out and enjoyed. And, of course, I couldn't lay my hands on it this morning. I have about 1,000 books at home, so couldn't find it, unfortunately. But I remember reading uh, Sands Through the Hourglass, I think Thank is the name you. of it. Yeah.
4: Yes, we uh, put that together in five months uh, Uh, walking to opposite ends of the house and saying, how do you remember how this happened? Oh, I remember it this way. Well, I remember it that way. So we wrote it in two voices. And we came in on our deadline, and our editor was astonished. We said, why is that? Writers never make their deadline. I said, well, we're from show business. If you don't make the deadline, (laughs) you you get the job. Fair
3: enough. So
4: we enjoyed doing that a lot and had some nice success with this, and then following that, our editor suggested that we should write a novel together, because she felt that though we were happy in our work as uh, actors and uh, Bill as a musician, we really were, a were, hidden talent was in writing. So we spent the next seven years, seven years, <laughs> uh, researching and Traveling the world, creating a story about a female performer in the age of Napoleon, uh, and went to the Waterloo battle site and even, uh, to Egypt because we tied her story in with another famous, famous uh, historical character of the period called, um, Belzoni. Uh, so we learned a lot about theater and music in, um, England at the time of Jane Austen, which is also the same period. So we had a wonderful time doing that. And the name of that book is Trumpet. And people look at it and look it up online and see it's a, it must be a textbook for playing the trumpet. But no, <laughs> <laughs> it's her family name. Ah,
0: actually, I was going to ask you about that. I also, I heard an interview that the two of you gave at the time that that was published in which you said that the two of you grew incredibly close. I mean, as close as you'd already been, you, you grew oh, yeah. even closer through the course of writing these two books, and especially this second one. I'm just curious, what was it about writing this book together that drew you closer? I mean, what, what about the writing process uh, made that happen?
4: Well, two brains are better than one. And, uh, for example, Bill can write uh, in iambic pentameter, without any stress whatsoever, and he will come up with a whole a whole scene in in an imaginary play, just like that. And I, I can't I can't possibly do that. I'm agog, and then I'll say, but but what were they wearing? But but what what was the response in the house? What, what, what was the air like at the time? What was, what were the tastes? What were the what was the sensuality of the moment? So I did a lot of color and build a lot of dialogue and then we would evaluate each other with with loving tolerance.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and the
4: final editing was the two of us sitting side by side with large format in front of the computer and saying, What do you think of it?" no 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 we can we use that word uh three um Three chapters back. We have to have another word for that. No, that's, that's extraneous. No, we've already covered that. Keep it moving. <laughs> and, wow. And it was great. It, there's nothing like collaborating on a work of art with someone you respect. Uh, I would highly recommend it for all marriages which are under a bit of stress. <laughs> Try creating something besides each other's temp. you know, uh, nagging at each other's right. temper.
2: Right. But it's strange. We did learn a lot from each other just going through that process. Mm.
0: Yes, terrific. I want to also give you a, ch- a chance to just say a word about, let's call it the often maligned world of soap opera. That is, uh, it uh, then and now it uh, it's often uh, uh, an assumption people make that that we're talking about acting and writing and production that is. You know, a, a, a level down from, for instance, prime time television or other kinds of Correct. of television so it's programming, well
4: and down generally in in uh, budget. Okay, so the story is extremely important. Uh, you're liable to see a repetition of sets. Uh, the acting is extremely important because in your movie stars, in your greatest stars, how many hours of your life did you spend with them? Even if they did 50 movies, even if you saw the movie several times, we're talking about dozens of hours or maybe, maybe, in an extreme case, maybe if you saw every Spencer Tracy film three times, 100 hours. Garbo, uh, maybe 12 hours. Uh, Even Tom Hanks, how many hours have you spent with him? But in the soap situation, you have spent thousands and thousands of hours with these actors. And if they captured your imagination, held your attention, touched you emotionally, uplifted you, this is a great achievement. So the people who have lasted in soap are not only facile, they're pretty damn good.
0: Right. Absolutely.
4: Um, And it's rare that people transition out of being soap opera stars into being uh, movie stars it has happened it does happen but generally you get you have so much work going on and the money begins to flow in a, in a, in a way that you didn't expect and you're raising a family and you say well I like it here in Connecticut or you know this isn't so bad living in studio city california I, maybe maybe I just want to go on with it instead of dumping it once <laughs>
2: <laughs> and but it, I understand and, and that a
4: lot of it has to do with what your agent tells you you should be doing. You know, a lot of careers have been destroyed by the bungling agent getting in the middle. I
2: understand the uh, the people who who deride soap. Um I that's what I thought it was. I thought it was lower a uh, set uh, below uh until I got on it. But I had never seen it. So
4: yeah, so most of the people that are saying "aha" soap opera, or or "aha" fiction, <laughs>
2: um,
4: are are missing a lot. <laughs> there, there's a, there's often a lot of uh, good culture and pop culture, as Susan Sontag discovered. <laughs> it, you didn't have to have read all the great books to know something. Hmm. Some people just had talent. Right. Yeah. So when
2: I when I got on days. I, I realized very quickly how wonderful the actors were
3: <laughs> and, well, and the
2: writing. It's a, What a feat. Days of Our Lives started in 1965.
0: And it's still there. And it's
4: about, to, this November, it's its 50th anniversary.
3: Wow. Wow!
4: And you yeah, know, do the, that. Most, most of the original audience has uh, moved to a higher plane, but they have managed to capture new audience with new cast and, It's been a revolving door for writers and producers, so it's just always been a really good show.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. It's one I remember my mother watching very faithfully back in the 1960s, and I would, every so often when I'd be home from school for one reason or another, would peer over her shoulder. So uh, even from the days when when the two of you were first on the program, I was probably getting a peek of you at you from time to time. And... uh, and still enjoy catching up with the good folks of 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 Salem, as I know you enjoy the the uh, the occasional visits which you get to make uh, yeah. uh, to t- to the program
4: we still love it
0: i when I uh, teach about opera, I often mention to uh, newcomers to opera I mean when it 's uh, a group of students who aren 't music majors or whatever and uh we're talking about the plots of certain operas which are sometimes a bit far-fetched where some character walks into the room and sees a woman in a cloak and jumps to the conclusion that it's not her or whatever and uh you know never in in grand opera people never bother to ask a question first they just leap to conclusions and of course all mayhem ensues but that's one of the things that generates the the, the, the excitement the, uh, and absolutely. the emotional high. It comes
4: from emotional high to emotional high.
0: Right. And uh, and in some respects, uh, it's probably not a coincidence that soap opera has the word opera in it, because to some extent, uh, some of the plots of, of juicy soap operas are kind of driven by some of the same elements. Uh, I mean, as opera fans, do you see a parallel there as well?
2: Oh, sure. <laughs> yes, what could be a better soap than Cabin uh, Tag True enough. Uh, I mean, both both of them are so so charged with with um, passion, cavalleria rusticana.
4: Yeah, the and wow, the, the, it's immediate, the immediate consequences. Um.
2: Pagliacci, so loaded with 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 intense intense passion at its height. Reedy really, pagliaccio <laughs> What could be more more <laughs>
0: like
2: a soap? Wonderful.
0: Absolutely. So you guys, uh, in addition to all that keeps you busy, uh, get out to the opera on a fairly uh, regular uh, uh, basis from the sounds we of it. We
4: have been attending the Los Angeles Opera since it was the New York City Opera on tour. Ah. We have finally achieved Fourth Row Center. <laughs>
0: <laughs> moving we, up in the world. Uh.
4: Moving up in the world. We have had our tickets for so long, and we're very much enjoying uh, the Met in uh, HD. I mean, that's that has become the great uh, Saturday morning treat for us mm. uh, to, uh, to sit amongst all those old Russian ladies who also attend Saturday <laughs> and go to the Metropolitan <laughs> Opera.
2: <laughs> and the Los Angeles Opera... Uh, we've been going to their seasons for almost 25 years now. They do wonderful work.
4: They yeah. really are good.
2: Absolutely. They...
4: We've watched it grow and uh, do some fantastic work. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Is one. is the artistic director, and I think he has a lot to say. James Conlon is their principal conductor. Yeah, the...
4: James Conlon. He's when, wonderful. When James Conlon first came uh, to L.A. and was doing these, Lectures prior to the performance, they had somebody that would ask him a leading question, or it was supposed to be an interview. They were supposed to be asking him questions. Well, the first time I heard him speak, they asked one question, and he went on for 45 minutes. <laughs> and by the third time, they didn't bother with a person <laughs> quizzing him. Although oh, just just give him the microphone and let him go. And he's amazing. Every night that he's conducting, he
2: does the, the, the um, lecture beforehand, from 6.30 to 7.15, yeah. he talks, and he's wonderful.
4: And I don't know how he has the energy to conduct. He gives so much in these lectures, and they're massively attended now. I think he has a great following in Los Angeles. It's very lucky to have him, and I hope his health continues to be good,
0: he has a very good following in the Chicago area too uh, at the Ravinia Festival, which mm-hmm. is the summer home of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, yeah. and presides over all kinds of exciting things there, including this summer wagner 's Flying Dutchman. So uh, we we know the name of James Conlon very well around here.
4: So. Yeah, he can, uh, conducted a Dutchman for us last season. Very so,
0: uh, good. Well, this is a delight to talk with both of you, and uh, oh. and I want to uh, wish you only happiness and great health in uh, the years that stretch ahead. Are you at work on another book or thinking about another book?
4: My husband is at work on a sequel to Trumpet. Wow. Yes, he
2: is. Well it's hard wh- to find time, but I, I do work on it.
0: And uh, this is, uh, I hope, in some way will, will be a, a yet another collaboration with the oh, two of you. Und-
4: undoubtedly in time it will. I'm letting him do the hard part. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very good. Bill Hayes and Susan Seaforth-Hayes, a great treat for me to speak with both of you today uh, on The Morning Show. Very best wishes to both of you.
4: Thank you, my Thank dear. you, Greg.